Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for the many ways you're giving us to serve you. I thank you, Father, that you can choose to call us in so many different ways. We have so many opportunities to serve because you've gifted us in so many ways and you've called us and you've opened doors. And I thank you, Father, for the hearts that are eager to reply and to, and to respond and serve, for the witness of that to each of us, that while we may sit and wonder how to serve, you, you show us and someone around us the pattern that we are to follow. Thank you, Father, for that. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the teaching of Joseph and his story and for all that we might learn about him and, and also in Christ through that example. Father, give you, uh, I give you this time and ask that the Spirit would be the teacher and that our words, Father, would be words he inspires and causes us to consider and to, to put into action in our lives. Let Oak Hill Bible Church be a church, Father, that represents not just the Bible on the page, but the Bible in motion in our lives. We thank you for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, Joseph is our focus, and what a great story this is. He is the next youngest child of Jacob, but he's already shown that he is wiser than his years in this story. And in chapter 37, where we pick up today, in verse 5, we continue to learn how the Lord is going to turn this man and his life to greater purpose. Last week, where we studied in chapter 37, we learned that Israel loved Joseph more than his brothers. And we studied how the true sense of that statement, the true meaning of it, was that Jacob had assigned Joseph the birthright in the family of Jacob. Remember, Reuben, who was the firstborn of Leah, had disqualified himself because of his rape of the concubine. And that left now Joseph, who is the firstborn of Rachel, to receive the birthright. What's interesting about our study last week is that the name Israel is used to describe Jacob as he takes the step of giving Joseph this responsibility. It's not Jacob who does it, it's Israel. And if you remember, anytime we see his new name used in the text, it is a confirmation for us that God is at work in Jacob to prompt this action. It is a godly step. Furthermore, we hear that Jacob gave Joseph this coat, either one of multiple colors or more likely from the translation it meant a coat of a long arm or a long-sleeved coat, that meant he had the authority in the family. He carries now the preeminent authority among his brothers. With all of that in place, naturally his brothers resent him for the fact that in the culture he would not have been considered the one who had the birthright. He would have been considered a younger and therefore a less honored child in the family. They hate him, we're told. They don't even speak to him. He is a son who has no one to talk to in the family. Why do they hate him? Well, at the core of it, they hate the righteousness of their brother because of their own unrighteousness. Those who had sin hated their brother in their hearts because he did right and he honored his father. And that animosity is only going to grow with time. We also studied, and we will continue to study, that Joseph is a wonderful picture of Christ in many of the details of his life. For example, we studied last week Jesus was the beloved son of God, just as Joseph is the beloved son of Jacob. Jesus was born under humble circumstances. He had an outward appearance that did not impress the Jewish authorities. He was not someone that you might think you should follow. He was hated by his Jewish brothers because he spoke truth and he denounced their unrighteousness. And as a result, they hated him and they put him to death. Nevertheless, Jesus is the one the Father has appointed to rule over the people of Israel. And he will obtain that rule one day when the Father permits. And so in all these little details, we see Joseph's life starting to show us Jesus specifically. Now, today we move forward in the text. 
we're learning still more about how Joseph ended up in Egypt and how the Lord is working in Joseph's life to bring all of Israel into Egypt, as he promised that he would do to Abraham. And then, of course, along the way, looking for more pictures. So let's go to verse 5 and pick up where we left off. Verse 5, then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, please listen to this dream which I've had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So Joseph experiences a dream that appears to be so powerful, so vivid in his experience, that he feels he has this need to share it with his family. I'm sure his brothers would have said, thanks for sharing, but that's too much sharing for us. He says in his dream, there are sheaves of wheat. Now what a sheaf is, is that bundled gathering of wheat that has been cleaved in the field. So it's been laid down as stock. Now you gather the stock up, you bundle them, and you tie them. And as each brother is there in the field with Joseph, each binding their own sheave of wheat, the sheaves then take on animated form in the dream. And the one that is Joseph's stands up while the others bow down to it in a gathering around it. Now, symbolically, the sheaves themselves represent each brother, obviously, So the clear message in the dream is that someday, somewhere, the brothers of Joseph will all accept Joseph's ruling over them and will bow down to his rule. It is not a dream that says Joseph will rule over his brothers. Some have taken it to mean that, but that's not what it means. It's a dream that says they will accept his rule. For it is already the case that he rules over his brothers. That doesn't require some future day. That's true even now. Joseph has already been appointed the birthright holder in the family. So Joseph already has the right to rule. That's why he wears this coat everywhere he goes. He is the one in authority. What has not happened, though, so far is that his brothers would actually accept that. They are fighting back against it. They are not willing to accept his rule. But the dream proposes that in a future day they will accept the rule of Joseph. And the symbols here are important to understanding the meaning of the dream. For example, the day of his brother's submission comes in conjunction with a famine. In the land of Canaan, the place where they sojourn, there will be a famine. When that famine comes, it will be the seeking of wheat that drives Joseph's brothers into Egypt, which then, of course, leads them to eventually submit to his authority as second in command to Pharaoh. So they will be seeking wheat, bowing down before Joseph in order to accept it. So even in the use of the symbol wheat, there is prophetic picturing of what will eventually take place. But there is a greater picture in this moment, as you might expect. That greater picture is in the way of Israel, the nation, and their relationship with Jesus, their Lord. Jesus is the Messiah, the one appointed to rule over the world and specifically to rule over Israel. When he returns in his second coming, as is promised, he will rule over the nations. And that will include his rule over a believing Israel. That rule over the world and over Israel comes with or without their approval, with or without their acceptance. One day, every tongue will confess. One day, every knee will bow. So the reality of the father's appointment does not change depending on whether you accept it or not. The truth of his rule will not be in debate when the day comes that reveals it. 
The only question is whether the stubborn and stiff-necked people of Israel will ever accept their Jesus as Messiah. And Paul teaches in Romans 11 that, yes, in one day, the nation of Israel will accept Jesus as Messiah and all Israel on that day will be saved. So the only matter is timing. Not a matter of if, but a matter of when. So Joseph is picturing the promise to Israel. As Joseph shares this dream with his brothers, we're told it provokes them to even greater anger because his brothers understood the meaning. And they assume that Joseph is telling them this dream in their hearing so as to pressure them to submit. Wouldn't you assume that if you were one of the brothers? If you had this situation in your family and the one who is disliked comes to you with a supposed dream and the dream just conveniently happens to reaffirm that they should be the one who rules and you should submit to their rule. Wouldn't that seem just a bit too contrived for you? That's the basis of their question. Are we really going to do this? They don't have any belief in what's been said. What about Joseph himself? Didn't Joseph understand that when he repeats this story to his brothers, he isn't exactly going to win them over? What was he expecting as he told this story? Well, perhaps he spoke prophetic truth without understanding it, but I don't think that's true at all. He was insistent that they listen. He seems very eager to convey its meaning to them. Then the only thing we're left to conclude is he understood it and he conveyed it without fear, knowing it was truth that needed to be shared. Some have suggested, and I've read this in places, that Joseph was a young man who lacked tact or he was naive. There's all kinds of ways we can twist this outside of what the text gives us. And put some of this back on Joseph as if he was making mistakes here. But that's not the right way to see this at all. In fact, if you do that, you miss a picture of Christ. You need to see Joseph here as a man who was obedient to God, spoke the truth without fear, understanding the consequences. That dream was given by God. Wouldn't you agree? And if the dream was given by God, therefore the message of the dream is from God. Joseph knew it. And his brothers hated it. That pattern of God giving Joseph the dream, God having a message that needs to be delivered, yet a people who did not want to hear it is exactly the picture of Jesus in the day that he walked the earth. He came with a message that he knew would not be heard, that would result in hatred. In fact, Jesus came knowing that his message would bring him to the cross. But he spoke it in obedience to the Father. Joseph is a man who hears from God in dreams This is the first dream in the Bible in which God himself does not appear and is not seen as speaking in the dream. This is a departure from the patriarchs. All the patriarchs who had seen dreams in one fashion or another saw a dream in which God himself speaks. Here you have a man who simply gets these visions and these symbols. When you look at God speaking in dreams in Scripture, there's an important pattern we should notice, and it starts here. God reveals himself in dreams to both Jew and to Gentile at times. When God does not speak personally, though, in the dream, when he uses symbols, in other words, to communicate some truth, he does that in Jewish dreams without the need for the Jews to ever have a translation or an interpretation. So when Jews receive a dream in symbol form, they always instinctively understand what it means. You see that evidenced here. You notice both Joseph and his brothers get it without any conversation at all. When God communicates in symbols, though, to Gentiles, they never get it. Gentiles must always seek a Jew for the interpretation of their dreams. 
Joseph will end up interpreting for Pharaoh. Daniel must interpret for Nebuchadnezzar. And that's a pattern throughout the Bible. Why that is so is simply because, as Paul says, Israel was the people appointed to receive the oracles of God. And the revelation of God to the world must always come through the Jewish people. The scriptures are written by Jews. Jesus was a Jew, so the word himself is Jewish. And now in the earlier days of the Old Testament, the revelation of God through dreams must come through a Jew in order to be known to the world. Proof that the nation of Israel retains that role as the preeminent nation in God's plan. So the dreams continue in Joseph's life. Verse 9, now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So here we have his second dream, and it's it's communicating a similar idea, as you can tell, I'm sure. The symbols have changed. You You don't have sheaves now anymore. You have the sun, the moon, and 11 stars. But the actions are the same. And the general sense is the same. These symbols bow down before Joseph. Now, Joseph's family, again, now specifically Jacob, they immediately recognize the meaning of these symbols. The celestial bodies here represent the members of Jacob's family. And just as those bodies in the heavens have a pecking order implied, so does the family of a patriarch. So the man in the family always has the preeminent role. The patriarch himself would be the most prominent member of the family. And the sun is considered the superior object of the sky. And so the sun represents the the father in this case. The moon is subject to the sun. It, It can only be seen when the sun is not in place. So it has a secondary role, and that's the wife or the mother. And then the stars are lesser lights in the sky, as God describes them in Genesis. So they form the sons of the family. In fact, you notice there's only 11 Stars, which is very important to noting the interpretation here. It's just the perfect number to, to fit for us. If Joseph is the one being bowed down to, then the other 11 must represent the other 11 sons who would do the bowing. So it lines up and it fits with the earlier interpretation and we see the same message. Jacob, as you notice, makes the correct interpretation, although he does it with some hesitation because he recognizes here that what Joseph is suggesting is not only will Joseph rule over the sons, But Joseph will also have preeminence over his own father and mother. Before we look at that in terms of its meaning, let's just note who is the mother. It's a valid question because Rachel's not alive. So is he suggesting that Rachel would be the one to bow down? How can that be if she is dead at this point, as we know? But then is it Leah who is now considered his mother when, in fact, he was born of Rachel? It could. But when Jacob says your mother, I think logically you trace that back to Rachel And if so, then it means we're looking at something here other than a pure literal fulfillment. It's speaking of a future day. Why do you think Jacob is so upset at this? Well, it's one thing for brothers to submit to another brother in this society. In fact, that would have been the proper thing to do, given that he had the birthright. It's quite another thing, though, for a child to suggest to his own father that his father submit to his authority. That was unheard of. Jacob draws a line at that point and says, you know what, that's going a bit too far. I think that coat's going to your head. You're not my superior. Notice again that Moses calls Jacob, Jacob at this point and not Israel. 
Jacob is not acting here according to the inspiration of the Spirit. He's not acting in a godly way. He's reacting in the flesh to this. The effect of the second dream, then, is much the same as the effect of the first one. The brothers have jealousy now, we're told, or hatred of Joseph, all the more. But it's interesting his father doesn't go that far. His father, we're told, keeps it in mind. And in Hebrew, what that means is, though he reacted negatively in the moment, Jacob is still willing to consider the possibility. He's mulling it over in his mind. There's a similar statement in Greek spoken about how Mary reacts to what she hears from the angel when she finds out that her son is to be born in the way that he is. She ponders these things in her heart, it says. This is the same kind of thought. It's, it's not clear to him. He doesn't understand it. And there's a part of him that doesn't accept it. But there's enough of him to know that what Joseph's saying may have the force of God behind it. So I can't dismiss it out of hand. The brothers, on the other hand, they dismiss it. Now, we know both of these dreams came from God. So we have to conclude that not only did God intend for the message to be given and therefore the prophetic meaning of it to be clear, but God also intended for the intermediate consequences that follow. What I'm referring to, of course, is God is intentionally provoking the anger of his brothers. God is taking what he knows is there in their hearts and he's stirring it up, putting it to good use in the end but working with it in the meantime. So we know that as Joseph received the dream and as Joseph delivered the dream, the intended consequences were in part to cause the brothers to be so angry that they might do something foolish. Now, does that make God the author of sin? Far from it. The sin of the brothers was their own, for that hatred was in their heart already. The hatred is like a head of steam in a steam engine. And that engine now is moving with the hatred that is in their heart. And it's going down the track. And God says, well, since you're already in motion, let me just turn that track a little bit and steer you in the direction that does the most good for my glory. And in this case, the Lord is working to expose the sin in the brothers' hearts, turn it for good purpose in his plan for Joseph. By the way, that mirrors another picture of Jesus and the way that the words of Jesus caused the anger of the Pharisees, which directly led to the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross. Psalms gives us what the greater good was. If you're asking, well, what good could there have been in stirring up the hatred of these brothers? Well, Psalm 105 is a commentary on this experience of Joseph and tells us at least in part, what the good was. We'll start in verse 16 as a cross-reference, 105, 16. And, speaking of the Lord, and he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over his possessions. And then, finally, here's the greater good. To imprison his princes at will that he might teach his elders wisdom. That is, that Joseph might teach Joseph's elders wisdom. So the Lord is working to teach Joseph's elders wisdom. Wisdom And his elders, of course, include his father and his older brothers. They will learn important lessons through this experience. But the good doesn't stop there. God uses the brothers' sin to ensure that the whole nation of Israel moves into Egypt, not just for a time, but for hundreds of years. And they spend that time in Egypt 
resulting in a good outcome to address the sin of Israel. Now, what am I referring to there? Well, that's chapter 38. When we get to chapter 38, we'll learn the other half of this story for why Israel needed to be in Egypt for hundreds of years. Until we get there, we'll wait. But for now, God is using Joseph to teach the generations, not only of his family, but many generations later, wisdom concerning the Lord and concerning Christ. So let's look at a picture here of, of Joseph uh, reflecting the work of Jesus. When Jesus came to Israel, as we've said already, they rejected him just as God designed it. That rejection was because of their sin, but the Lord took their sin, stirred it up through the words of Jesus, used it to his advantage to produce a good outcome, the good being that they would crucify their own Lord and in so doing create atonement for you and I and for the world. And then as a result of their rejection of the Messiah, God then has Israel set outside the land, dispersed into the nations. As he scatters them, he makes possible the opportunity for Gentiles to come into the salvation that he offered. In Joseph's day, the salvation that comes from Joseph going into Egypt is that of bread. In Jesus' day, the provision that comes through the scattering of Israel is the bread of life to the Gentile world. So some may be troubled at the prospect of watching the Lord stoking the anger of these boys a little and using it for his great purposes. Is that fair? I can imagine perhaps in someone's mind right now, a phrase is coming to the foreground of your mind. Something like, does a loving God do that or something to that effect? Shouldn't the Lord work to assuage the boy's anger and and bring down their sin? Isn't that the right thing for God to do in this case? Well, that perspective is understandable, but it's wrong. Literally, it's wrong. The Lord is not in the business of accommodating or appeasing sin. That's not his role. He's in the business, so to speak, of exposing sin, judging sin, bringing an end to sin, ultimately. And he can't accomplish those goals if he makes it easy for us to sin. If he makes it comfortable to remain in a state of sin. And neither is that true in the life of an individual or is it true for the world as a whole. God is in the business of provoking and stoking sin to bring it to the point in which it either destroys the sinner or it brings us to our knees. I mean, we've heard the sayings, right? There's no atheists in a foxhole. That's not true, by the way. But it, it plays on a principle that I think does have truth. Sometimes the greatest work God can do in the heart of someone is when he brings them to the end of themselves. When they're at a point in which there is no hope, apparently, there is no option, and death is staring them in the face, or ruin, financial ruin, or some other form of destitution. At that moment, people sometimes will open the heart to the gospel and pray and, and receive Christ. God does that work. God is in the business of doing that. So if these boys are going to sin, let them sin. Let them sin to such a great degree that it causes the family to end up in Egypt on their knees before Joseph. That's a far better outcome that they would sit at home and enjoy their sin. The Lord harnesses sin for his purposes and turns it to good. You have to remember the world when it fell under Adam in the garden became a world, a place of sin, the dominion and the playground of the enemy. And it's full of depravity and ungodliness. We cover it over with the facade of everyday life and we talk in nice terms. But the reality is the scriptures say each of us is depraved and utterly wicked apart from God. 
So when you're faced with that consequence, as God looks down on the world and faced with that outcome, a world of depravity marked by sin, what are his options? He only had two, as I understand it. He could have either brought immediate judgment and destruction to the whole world at that moment and dealt with sin as it should be dealt with. Or he could forego that judgment for a time and in the interim work with sin to produce good and righteous outcomes according to his purposes. Well, he chose option number two and hallelujah that he did. Thanks be to God that he chose to work with sin, giving us an opportunity to be born and saved. So Genesis 37, let's go forward just a little further today. Verse 12, then the brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And Joseph said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. A man found him and behold, Joseph was wandering in the field and the man asked him, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me, where are they pasturing the flock? Then the man said, they've moved from here. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now from our study a few weeks ago, you might think it, a bit strange that Joseph's brothers would venture back into the region of Shechem. Remember this place? This place on a map, by the way, is about 50 miles north of Hebron, where they have been staying with Jacob in his home. That's a long walk. But moreover, it's the place of that massacre that took place just a couple chapters ago, where Simeon and Levi went in and killed all the people of Shechem. You remember that story, right? It's a place that created a bit of a problem for Jacob in the way that it caused him to fear for his life among the peoples. So why do they venture so far away and why do they go to a place with so much bad history for the family? Well, first, traveling that far to pasture your flocks in an arid, dry climate isn't actually that strange. So they might roam that far at times in order to find good pasture land. But secondly, it would appear as though they're trying to escape their brother's oversight because they went there without him. That's a long way to go without the one who has authority over your work in the field. The very fact that they've gone this far without Joseph suggests that they are trying to work around his leadership. Jacob has probably maintained some degree of control over that land since he was last there, in part because there's no one living for the most part in Shechem anymore. They would have known that area very well. So it all fits. Jacob's family, his sons would have thought that's familiar ground. We know where we can find pasturing there. We know there's no one competing for that land. And to top it all off, we'll be a long way from Joseph. Now, Jacob, we're told, becomes concerned for his sons and for the time they've been away. Perhaps the concern comes out of the reality that the last time they spent any significant time in Shechem, bad things happened. Notice, though, it's Israel that sends Joseph, not Jacob. Israel sends Joseph to go look for his brothers. It indicates a divinely inspired act on Jacob's part. Do you think Joseph had any trepidation about making this trip? Well, first of all, he has to travel a desert road alone. This is at least a three-day walk, maybe four days. Traveling alone on a desert road for any length of time was a very dangerous thing in those days. It was putting him in jeopardy. And when he finally gets there, he's going to be far from his father's authority and protection. He's going to be alone. Now, we know where the story's going. He didn't, presumably. But he knew there was some vulnerability here. This request was something God wanted Jacob to make. And therefore, God is working with this experience of Joseph going on his own and in stirring up the son's anger to create a certain outcome 
far from the father's authority, angry brothers, and let's send Joseph into his brother's care. It's going exactly according to plan. This is exactly the right situation. And by the way, Dothan, the place where they eventually meet, happens to be located on a major trading route leading to the Via Mar, the way of the sea, which goes directly down into Egypt. It's all set up perfectly. Now, for his part, what does Joseph say to his father? When the father lays out this request, he says without hesitation and probably with a recognition of the dangers, he says, I am here. Send me. In fact, he agrees saying I will. But in Hebrew, it literally says this. Behold, I am here. This, folks, is a beautiful picture of Christ. Like Joseph, Jesus was sent to the fallen world to rescue his brothers. The Bible tells us that before Jesus came to earth, he was with the Father. In 1 John 1.1, it says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Then Jesus said of himself, quoted in Hebrews 10:7, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. He says, Then I said, Behold, I have come. Jesus uses exactly the same words that Joseph used. As the Father looks down on the fallen earth, And turns to his son who is at the right hand, who was there in the beginning, who was and always will be. And he says, I want to send you to your brothers who are in the fallen world. Jesus immediately turned to the father and said, behold, I will go. And we're told Joseph left his father, Jacob, in Hebron. You know what the word Hebron means? Communion, fellowship. Jesus and the father in fellowship, in communion, before Jesus left to come to the earth. And then we're told that Joseph is sent to Shechem as Jesus was sent to the fallen sinful world. Shechem represents the sin of the world in this story. The name Shechem means shoulder, but it means it in the sense as to shoulder a burden. And so the events in that city were not only a burden to Jacob. Those events represent the burden Jesus came to earth to bear leaving communion with the Father, going to a fallen and sinful place to bear a burden, that is, to bear the sin of you and I. Philippians, Paul writes this in 2.5. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even the detail of the man who finds Jesus wandering in the field is part of the picture. You ever wondered about that detail? It seems like it has no real meaning in the story. It's just there and then you move on and you wonder, why did God leave that in the story? Well, of course, there's reason. Joseph, we're told, is wandering in Shechem when he's found by this man. He's without a home in Shechem. He's without his family. He's alone as a wanderer. And in that way, Joseph is yet again picturing Christ. Do you realize Christ is homeless? He's truly homeless. He was a homeless man after he began his ministry. He came to a world that was not his home, and he lived in that world without literally a home. In Luke 9, 57, 
Jesus says this, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. The meaning of that statement, by the way, is whatever your destination is, I'll be there with you in this world. And Jesus answers that and says to him, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying to this man, you want to follow me to where I go as into this world? I have nowhere in this world I'm going. I have no home here. This isn't my home. If you're looking for me to lead you to a home here and now, don't bother following me. There's no home I'm leading you to here. At the end of John 7, there's this poignant moment where Jesus has been teaching and it's time for people to go home. And it says that everyone goes to their own homes. And then the question is, well, what did Jesus do? And the next statement is, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Everyone had somewhere to go at night except Jesus. He was literally homeless, wandering in this world. And moreover, he had no family in this world. You think, well, he had Mary. He had his natural brothers, Joseph, maybe. What what about them? Well, when some of them came to visit Jesus at a point in his ministry in Luke chapter 8, this is what Jesus said in Luke 8, 20. It was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and he said to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Finally, Jesus came for one reason only to this world. It's not his own to seek and find the lost. Why did Joseph go to Shechem? It's not his home. He's wandering. He's trying to find family and can't find any. But his only purpose in being there was to seek and find those who were lost. Just as it is written, John 1, 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But glory to God that John 1 continues two more verses. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the pictures of Joseph as Christ. But more importantly, Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you that as we study how you worked in the lives of this Jewish family, we can see you laying the groundwork for letting Gentiles like us join your family. Thank you, Father, that you chose to work through one people to give the word of God and the seed promise of the Messiah and all the blessings that have come from that. And thank you, Father, that we, though we did not merit it on our own and have done nothing to receive it, but yet have been made children of God by the grace that you offer. We we thank you, Father, for that. And we ask that our memory and our understanding of this would be useful to our witnessing to others. That what we are in Christ could be the basis for you turning others to know you. Thank you for Oak Hill. Thank you for the men and women who serve here. Thank you, Father, for the chance to serve this city. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.